Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have Tabby Haley, who is a singer-songwriter, also a VP at J.P. Morgan Chase. She graduated summa cum laude in computer science from Pace University in 2006, just released a new album, Stance, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different things, but Haley and I, or, uh, Tabby and I met a long time ago, back in like 2008, maybe something like that. So nice to see you again, and thank you for joining us. Nice to see you, Chris. Thank you for having me. Such an honor to be here. It's so great. I had no idea when I met you way back when that you were a singer, and you are an amazing singer. How did that How did that start for you? Oh, thank you so much for saying that. And and yes, I figured a lot of people didn't know that about me. And it's also because it 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 wasn't until as you know after I met you that I really took my music career more seriously and started performing and recording. And that started for me because, well, I mean, just growing up, I always loved singing, and that helped me health-wise because I had muscular dystrophy. And I always need to do breathing exercises. And it also helps me emotionally because I am in a wheelchair. So my physical uh, appearance shows that I am in a wheelchair. So I've always felt like I was different from a lot of other people. And yes, that's why I started uh, always singing and then writing uh, in high school and taking it seriously once I realized I'm writing really good music. So I want to perform them and share them with the world and even write songs that people like myself who might have felt the same way growing up uh, can relate to. I've read spinal uh, spinal muscular atrophy and muscular dystrophy. Are the two interchangeable? Are, is one correct? Did I read something incorrectly or? No, you read correctly. Uh, Muscular dystrophy is the broader category of neuromuscular type diseases. And there are, to my knowledge, 42 kinds. And one of them is what I have, spinal muscular atrophy, SMA for short. And within that, there are even more types and they type it by number. So I am type two. And um, and yes, yeah, so that means most type twos are like myself who have never walked. Never walked. And it is degenerative as well, right? Is that the nature of spinal muscular atrophy? Yes, it is degenerative. So I rapidly get weaker over time. And even though there has been breakthrough treatments in the past five years, and I am on them. Uh, it still, it still gets uh, worse for me physically, but I do my best to always be proactive to try to slow that progression. Or sometimes I call it regression. Exactly, a regression, which brings you back to the music in some ways. Because what I'm imagining 
with the music is that as a result of the spinal muscular atrophy, you were having to do therapy. But in some ways, the music, the singing, seems actually like you were playing. And so you were getting your therapy as you were playing, as opposed to just doing your therapy. Am I correct in that assumption? You are absolutely correct. And I was killing two birds with one stone. Actually, I remember doctors asking me to blow a candle as a way of exercising. They'd be like, why don't you blow a candle and then keep uh, making the candle go further and further away from you? That's a way to force you to take a deep breath and exhale to the point where you can blow blow it out. And believe it or not, that was a challenge for me. And then to make it fun, they start saying, why don't you sing happy birthday, even though it's not your birthday every day, obviously. And I would do that. And I was like, you know what? I I sing really well. I already knew that because when I was growing up, I would listen back to tapes. I'm aging myself, cassette tapes that my parents would record from when I was two, three years old. And I back to back side A and side B, I would be singing so many songs. And my dad is very musical. So he would tell me if I'm out of tune, he had no hesitance with that. So I realized, yes, singing is a way that I exercise my lungs the way they recommend we should be doing on a regular basis, people with my type of muscular dystrophy and people probably in general should always take a deep breath now and then. You know, that my mom says sometimes that it's healthy to wake up in the morning and just cough, cough it out. And, and let me know if you, if you agree, but you know, it really is nice to just have that moment where you're realizing every breath is a huge, a huge thing that sometimes we take for granted. And especially people like myself recognize that when we get sick. I was fortunate to be able to speak in front of resident doctors and a lot of other people in the medical field about how over time singing does really help me exercise my lungs, my muscles and my diaphragm and stay positive. Are you stronger now as a result of the singing than you would than they would have expected you to be at this point in your life? Is it something that really is super beneficial on the on the physical side? Chris, they did not even expect me to live as long as I am already living. <laughs> so that's an emphatic yes. Just just to level set, yes. And and in addition, absolutely. It singing, I don't mean to sound dramatic here, but it actually has helped me make some huge life decisions as well. Okay. You're you're teeing that up. There was a time out of many times that I was in ICU and had been intubated when I was younger and they call the process of removing the tubes that are down your throat. They call that extubation. And I would have a hard time in the extubation process because after an hour or within an hour of extubation each time after I was you know, intubated, they would need to put me back on the tubes 
because I would go under respiratory arrest. And when I say singing helped me make huge decisions in my life, it's because knowing that I wanted to sing and that I loved my soprano voice because I was in choir at the time, so I was obsessed with being a soprano, motivated me to not give up during all of those hard times and trials of excavation and to just stay positive that I could still live a good and happy life. I mean, every day I remember in ICU, I would just say, I wanna be in school with my classmates. I wanna be in choir. So, so that's what I mean when I say that. And there are many other examples just like that. So imagine. <laughs> it's a reason to live, right? I mean, it, and, and that's, that, that's, your first album was called I Write Life, right? And, yes. and, and there was a the title song too. What what is the significance of that? I write life because it sounds similar to what you're talking about. It's I wrote life, but yes, very close. I I actually I realize in retrospect that people might read it and and think <laughs> exactly uh, something a little deviating from what it actually means. But thank you for allowing me to explain. I wrote life. The the self titled album of after a track called I Wrote Life is about a time when I was in third grade and I think the weather was bad outside so we couldn't have normal recess so the teacher gave the students a moment to write on the chalkboard and I remember that what I wrote on the bottom of the chalkboard, because I'm in a wheelchair, so of course I can't reach up high, like everyone's trying to reach as high as they can. I just wrote the word life in capital letters. And I remember it's because I'm always a deep in thought about wanting to just live every day, like everyone else being able to have the same privileges and play with other kids. So that's what that song is about. And it's to motivate people with that example and others in the song about how valuable our life is, especially from the perspective of someone who might be in a situation where their life has a lot of hardship, like mine did at the time. And definitely also to motivate against anyone who might be thinking about taking their life. So I hope people take a listen to it because I also wrote it with a verse talking about one of my best friends who was considering that. And I write in the lyrics like, I won't let you go and don't let me go. <laughs> a lot of my songs are about that kind of thing. Like if I can do it, you can do it. I mean, you're talking about one that the music was the thing that allowed you to endure some of these really difficult medical procedures. I mean, just having 
having been intubated or whatever, I mean, just like having to swallow a, a, a tube, right? I mean, this is, this is something that's not comfortable in any way, but then also the union, the, uh, the, the pact effectively with your friend of like, no, we're going to, we're going to find our way through. People can probably look at you and say, oh, well, she doesn't necessarily know about life. You haven't experienced life in some ways, but it, it sounds like it's exactly the opposite that, that you have a greater depth than even as a third grader had a greater depth of what knowledge of life meant. What does life mean to you? A fulfilling life, the goal of what you're trying to do? Having the opportunities and seizing them. So being able to go to school, have a higher education, which is what I did, if that's what you want and that's what I wanted. Have a job, be independent, and independence can be defined differently for each person. But for me, it meant having my own place, financially supporting myself, being able to engross myself in what I like to do. And music was always one of them. And now I call that my second career. And also on that list is traveling. And that one I'm trying to accomplish slowly but surely. You know, I I I uh, am very very interested in seeing airplanes become more wheelchair accessible. So it's very difficult for people in a power chair because uh, they can break the motor, they can break the electronics, and they can also ruin customized seating. So uh, that's why I kind of have to wait until that becomes more accessible. But that's an opportunity that would make life feeling, I mean, traveling the world. That's why I like to watch your videos and see you travel. It makes me so happy. Do you have anywhere in particular that you would like to go? I would like to go to Rome. I would highly recommend Rome. I love Italian food. I would love to visit visit all of the tourist sites, I heard they're very accessible. It's one of the most accessible cities in Europe, I heard. And also stop by Vatican City, because I'm, I'm huge on spirituality. I think you should do it. You could get around. I mean, the only the only real challenge in, in Rome that I've found in a wheelchair is, is the cobblestones. The cobblestones can be, but for you, that might be a little less of a problem. You might get jostled around a little less than I did uh, and might have a little bit more power to get up to, you know, the top of the, go around to the top of the Spanish steps and go see the Medici Museum. Or uh, one of the things that I did when I was there, actually, which, you know, when can you ever say that you've gone around a country in an afternoon? And so I went around the Vatican City in an afternoon. I mean, some of it was a little sketchy. There weren't really necessarily the best sidewalks, but at the same time, you know, you did it. So, so I would, I would highly recommend going to Rome. I think you would, I think you'd absolutely love it. It would be perfect for you. So oh, looking you. at, you yeah, you should definitely do it. Um, the music, it's, it's interesting. I mean, do you, 
do you sort of revel in the dichotomy of what people expect from you and then they're blown away when they hear you sing because it's it's a bigger sound. I mean, as the guy on CNN said as well, you know, it's a bigger sound than you expect, but, but I would imagine that is kind of nice to be able to shock people in some ways. Yes, it is. And that's why I decided to take this seriously is because I said to myself, people probably don't think I can sing. When they hear me say, I like to sing, they're probably like, okay, that's, that's great for you. But don't consider themselves as someone who would enjoy listening to me sing. So I was like, well, then you have to do it, Tabby. So I perform all around uh, New York City when, and I definitely get flattered when I hear comments like the one you mentioned from the CNN anchor about, wow, I didn't expect that big voice. I mean, I, I, I'm proud of the range I have, being able to sing high and low and hold notes and have vibrato. I definitely think just like any artist, it's a craft that you can keep improving, but there are different ways I have to work at it than, than, a, than an average vocalist would because of my strength. But I still think I keep getting better. I, I don't think age has made me get any worse, nor my muscles. That's why I'm so relieved that this second album, which you're talking about, uh, is sounds so great to you because it is the second album. It's not the first. <laughs> it's you, your second album. And at the same time, you've worked with some amazing people. And I mean, you've sold out the Mercury, which has seen people like Radiohead, Lou Reed and Joan Jett and yes. Jeff Buckley and you know, some of these kinds of people. I mean, this is some, this is some of the who's who of cool New York and you are part of the who's who of cool New York. Who has been the coolest person that you've been able to work with? Have you been blown away by anyone? I, I, I can't pick a favorite, but I, I just, I love it all. Like the producers being able to do what they do and, and allow me to bring out the emotion at the same time, uh, perfect all of my pitches and bring out the best in all the songs to the, to the engineers, the master engineer who's Grammy award winning and has worked on some famous soundtracks we are familiar with, such as like Home Alone. That's all amazing. And of course the musicians. And they are just absolutely amazing. All of the elements they add. That's, I hope you notice that there's a lot of different genre styles in my music. And the common theme is me and my catchy melodies and my voice and my style how I sing my runs and such. But yes, it's I, I, I appreciate all of them. And this particular album, I'm also proud that I was able to bring in a good friend of mine who I've always wanted to sing with me. He's also in a power wheelchair. His name is Phil Barbetta and is a touring musician here in the East Coast. So 
Yes, all of them. I can't pick. <laughs> How does this, I mean, the, the juxtaposition sometimes is, is to me really interesting of as someone who cannot sing, I mean, I am I am entirely offensive as far as singing is concerned. I mean, it's it's like bad breath. You're kind also of deal. a very humble person, so I don't know how much I believe. No, no, you should really believe me. You should really believe me. I can I can give you references, but that is kind of cool in some ways. In that there there are a lot of us who just plain can't sing, but then. For you, there are a lot of things that you don't do as easily as the average person might, but yet you're able to sing in a, in a transcendent way. How do, you, how do you reconcile that in your mind or how do you see that interpreted in other people too? Isn't that amazing? It really shows that we, we have our gifts. That, that that I'm just I'm just thinking about what you said there, about how we how we have different talents and our superpowers in some ways, right? Absolutely, and we should be sharing it, which is why I'm doing that, and you do that. So so yes, that that that's amazing. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm so enamored with that thought. What was the question? <laughs> the idea of there are things that you can't do. But yet you can do this other thing in such a, I mean, it's not like, right. it's not limited to this other thing, but the singing, we're talking about the singing right now, but you can sing so spectacularly. And I mean, I mean, this is, this is back to the idea of I wrote life, right? I mean, this is sort of the nature of life, of finding something that you love, of, of finding your community, your, your people who are going to help you along the way, but also celebrating that that gift that you that you might have and being able to share it and how how does that reconcile in your mind and how does it also how, how is it interpreted by other people i understand yes absolutely i i do think that it is a big thought it is something that i even doubt myself about sometimes because you have have to cross that line of confidence you know like I, I I have a lot of positivity I'm showing but it stems from me staying positive for a purpose right and that purpose is the negativity and we can be our own worst enemy so sometimes I do think Tabby who do you think you are do you, <laughs> do you think that you can really sing and do you think that um, people will listen to you. Do you know that you have this stigma to fight against uh, being someone who is disabled? And do you also know that there are a lot of other people who are great singers as well that you're competing against? But then I realized, you know what? This is good. You know why? Because you have people who are helping you bring these songs to life in the recording studio or when you're performing on stage. And why else? Because people are listening to the music and because you're getting these opportunities in the media. So that's how I, I balance and get to, yes, I think I do have that talent and I'm going to own it 
and do everything I can and say that I, so I could say in the future, I did everything I can to nurture it and share it with the world. You talked about the stigma and the singing is in contrast to that stigma in so many ways. Do you feel a responsibility in some ways to be, to be spectacular in order to be seen? And then also to shine that on other people, I guess. Yes, there's so much, so many dichotomies, right? There really are. There's the basic ones about just being an artist. And then, yes, now this one about like, do I feel like I have to kind of make up or overcompensate with certain types of songs, styles, lyrics about my disability or not about my disability? And I always just end up pursuing the root of whatever I feel at the moment. And then if the melody sounds great and the musicians like it, that we're already on step three now, which is recording and then also performing. So, so that's how it, how it goes. But, but I definitely go through those motions every time it's a cycle and it's like that kind of pattern where I think negative first for a minute and maybe that will help me craft the song or whatever it is I'm tackling. It could be like trying to book a certain gig. Whatever it is, is the, is the subject at the moment. I might think negative about it for a second and then one, then I'll just dig myself out of that hole and realize, wow, no, this is the right direction. And I know this is right. Can you talk us through what it's like to go from your place, from your home to a gig and to get on stage? So the day of a show, <laughs> it depends if it's a weekday or a weekend, but usually if it's a weekday, I'm still working my nine to five. <laughs> and then is it percolating in your mind that you're going to be singing later on yes I get that I get the the excitement in my belly but it's it's not nervousness I'm usually just excited like I can't wait to see everyone and be on stage and show everyone my new material and see them sing along to old material but the process is I tell everyone in my household at that moment so I'll tell like my aide, my home health aide, for example, okay, five o'clock, we're doing this, 5.30 is this, six o'clock is this, we're out the door at 6.30, you know, things like that. And then uh, usually either someone in my house will drive me, I have a wheelchair van, or one of my musicians will come, take the train to my place and then drive me. And then we bring all of our instruments and arrive at the venue uh, for a sound check and do that sound check. And sometimes it's like a process because the stage might not be accessible. And actually I shouldn't say it might be, most of the time it's not. So then we have to, we know ahead of time, but we have to either get me lifted on stage or use a portable ramp that we either brought 
or the venue has. How much does your chair weigh? They tell me 400 pounds. 400 pounds. Yes. Each new chair, they keep telling me it's heavier and heavier. <laughs> you would think it would be the opposite, right? But it's the battery. It's nerve wracking, getting lifted and thinking of everything that can go wrong, you know, leading to the actual start of my performance or even the moment of the performance. I'll think so negative so that anything that happens is not really going to break me down. Sometimes I'll even think in my head, okay, what will you do if the electricity goes out? <laughs> I'll go that, that extreme. But there's never been any huge debacles. Everything's been smooth and always performing to a full house. So it's really nice. That's why I always look forward to it. Do people recognize you before you go on stage? Yes. And, and, and you know, that brings up another point about accessibility. Uh, in most venues, uh, the artist and the band can hide somewhere, like a dressing room. But I've never been to a dressing room in my life. So I'm always where the audience is. So before a show, a lot of people come up to me and talk to me when I'm trying to save my voice. And you know, you had to be extra loud because before a show, they're playing music in the background. So you're, it's like you're in a club, you're speaking above other people and the music instead of speaking to everyone afterwards. But of course I, I, I embrace it, but it is a different process than someone who could go to the dressing room because you can't really hide i mean there is that there are the nerves as you approach a big event and and suddenly and because you're preparing to give what you've you've practiced but right. yet if you have to see people beforehand then you're giving away part of what you were preparing to give away once you gave, got on stage and it gets a lot more challenging in listening to you, I can't help but hear the vulnerability, the vulnerability of like relying on other people to lift your 400 pound chair onto the stage, hoping that everything works out, that nobody drops you. That, but the vulnerability is part of part of your story and part of your your advocacy, isn't it? Does is that is that what drives your your music? It is. It's burying my soul. And what sets me apart from someone burying their soul through song is that I'm also talking about my disability in a lot of my lyrics. But I do it, I try to do it in a clever way that you can relate to it if you didn't even know that I have a disability. That's that's what makes the lyrical composition fun to do. Like I even have a song about dealing with home health aids. And I don't mean to say dealing like it in a negative way. I mean, I go through so many because they don't stay with you for life. Uh, the longest home health aid I've had with me was 12 years. I have one with me now going on 10 and the other one just past five years. 
So they're long term, but they still switch out. And when I go through the interview process, new people are, are coming into my life for an int intimate position. So I have a song called Threshold about that. But guess what? Someone just texted me this weekend saying, I love Threshold. I feel like it's about my boyfriend. <laughs> Moving in with me and how it feels that they're now living with me. <laughs> so yes, I feel like I'm vulnerable because I reveal so many things. I say some words I've never heard in a song or at least pop music before such as dystrophy and atrophy and even the word disability. So I kind of like that I do that. And I like that I'm open to share all of these stories because I think it's a way of me leaving a really important mark and hopefully make other people feel like they can too. In the universality, it's amazing how specific and how personal and how intimate that song is, but then it plays in a universal kind of way. And I read that you you said if you ever met the Pope that you would you would want to that you you'd ask him to, you know, that it, you'd hope that you could find love, which might be the lament of every every musician ever, right? Like is there is there part of isn't that part of the, the motivating uh uh drive to actually get on stage that that you're you're searching for love and and sharing love and sharing that vulnerability. Do you share do you feel like you share that with those people who've gone before you, who've come before you? Is, is, are, are you adding your mark to that? Yes, absolutely. And just to any songwriter who writes about love. I mean, a lot of us love songs about love. I hear that's why so many people love Taylor Swift songs. It's it, A lot of them are about love. And I actually started writing about that before I started writing about my disability. So I started realizing I can write about my disability. I can just do it in a manner that I feel comfortable with. And that's what I'm doing. But you know, can I just say, you brought up something very interesting to me. You mentioned about like, well, I, what you mentioned made me think about timing. And I feel like I want to just tell you, because we've been talking a lot about me. Your one revolution is like the documentary before documentaries got so huge like they are now. And I feel like, I feel like, people should recognize that and that you are a pioneer in that sense. And I feel like for myself, writing about my disability and performing is kind of in the same parallel way, pioneering. So that's what I really want to do. And since you mentioned earlier on about us having like our own niche, our own talent, our own gifts, while we can't do other things that other people have a talent or gift for, that made me think about that's exactly why we should share it. And I'm so glad we're both doing that. There is a responsibility in some ways. There's to to go and and live your life as fully as possible. And in that being a pioneer, 
And the lucky thing for us is that there, there are those people who came before us that we can stand on their shoulders and hopefully, hopefully go higher, you know, standing on right. the shoulders of giants in a lot of ways. And, and, you know, the people who come behind us will stand on, stand on our shoulders. You're an advocate as well. When did you come to being an advocate? How old were you? I was 18. And 18. it's funny, yes, it's funny you mention that because before being an advocate, I was the exact opposite. I was in denial about my disability, not denial like I don't think, like I believe I can walk when I really cannot, but I was in denial that I was different and I did not want to, I guess all that time I was sick or in the hospital, I was just trying to focus on normal life as whenever I was in the setting of normal life, such as being in school instead of the hospital. So I did not want to associate myself with other people with a disability. And then when I turned 18 and moved out and went to a dormitory for college, I got a rude awakening <laughs> that there was gonna be some battles I would have to fight for me to get things I need to to be in the classroom, to get to and fro from home, my dormitory to school, and then to even get fair pricing. Fair pricing for what? For my dormitory. They wanted to charge me double because my home health aide was with me. There are many things I had to advocate for myself for, and that turned me into an advocate. I, I think prior to 18, my mom was the one doing it all and I would watch her do it. But then when I was in college, mom's at work living 60 miles away. <laughs> Here I am, I need to speak up for myself. And that turned me into an advocate for myself. And then all of that energy gave me a charge to help others as well like me. Did that happen at the same time, the idea of, okay, I'm fighting for myself, but I'm also helping others? Because sometimes the idea of helping others, it can be easy, easier to fight for the group than it can be to fight for yourself. Did, did that dichotomy, back to the dichotomy idea, did, did that enter your mind? How did that work in your mind? It did. That definitely was something... I thought about because it's better if you have a crew with you or an army to fight against something. But I didn't always have people like myself, especially in my school around. So that actually is why when I entered the workforce, I started a disability resource group, uh, employee resource group focused on disabilities and created my first ever group of people that I like went person to person recruiting. As I learned that doing it myself was powerful, but I need to now find people like me. 
So I do believe that there are strength in numbers, but just like with our separate talents, our separate gifts that are innate within each of us, there are different people fighting for different causes. So I have so many that mean so much to me. Like I mentioned, like having accessible air travel or accessible venues for me to perform at. There's also people who maybe have other types of advocacy that they are focusing on. So collectively, it's great because we're gonna make change. And individually, we have the separate focus of what means most to me. Oh, I wish there was a day, Chris, when there wasn't so many, so many things that <laughs> need badly. You have to fight against. Right, but in a way, it's good because we're it's an opportunity for us to, to, to step up. But there's just so many to step up. It's part of being an artist too, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you mentioned something earlier that also brought something to mind I forgot to say. And about when I'm performing, I actually have no problem being vulnerable on stage and saying, hold on, like not during a song, but in between songs, you know, artists sometimes banter, right? And when my musicians, let's say, are changing an instrument or switching guitars, I'll be like, okay, guys, I'm gonna have a diva moment. Can someone come up here and fix my hand for me? <laughs> and they will, and everyone will clap and they'll love it. So maybe that's something I'll bring as a trend. If, if I ever get to be on like a huge award stage or something, I can not hesitate if I need help to call out for help while not interrupting, of course, the, the artistry and the beautiful music, but to also not hesitate if I need someone to help me physically. Well, it's connecting with your audience too, but the idea of, of being being out front as as the musician or being being the diva, you you were pretty vulnerable in in talking with the New York Times about dating. That's oh, yes. that's a pretty amazing sense of vulnerability. What was the driving force? What what allowed you to get over what might be the inhibitions of talking about something that's so personal? You mean talking about something that my parents might read? <laughs> and then and then worrying about there is some truth in that. Sure, I'm not gonna lie. Like it took a while before I shared it like on Facebook and such because it, it, it could kind of embarrassing to talk about romance sometimes so openly but yes I, I I always think about the negative first right and then I think about the positive and then the positive wins so I realized that this is going to help other people look at people like me differently than they are now, which is sometimes a, a prejudice to think that we're not interested in romance or that we're not able to love or that we're not able to satisfy you physically, things of that nature, then yes, I'm going to be on this article because 
I know that it's important and it's bigger than me. And I have some funny stories to tell. Is the humor a necessary part of being able to talk about something that is so serious? Sometimes. Um, I can cry. Like, I can cry on the spot right now if I if I think about certain things and start telling you about. Like, if I, if I open a topic, within a minute, I can cry. So, yeah, humor is important. Crying is important, too. But I think uh, people... People maybe like sad songs, but I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Like speaking wise, do they like laughter more or sadness more? I know music wise, sadness, because I've I've asked people and I've seen people vote <laughs> for a sad song over a happy song. That's an interesting question because, yeah, I think that it's certainly in the musical side that that the sad songs definitely there there's a real power to them as the person on stage i wish that people would laugh more i mean that would that that makes my job easier because it's so interactive where sometimes the sad part is gets to be more personal and and is more quiet so so it's not as much it's not as much feedback i don't know I don't always know when I'm reaching them. So you can't leave um, the room when there's silence. That's true. You can't when they're when they're deep in thought. Yeah, unless someone's like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I like those. I, I, I definitely like an audience that's, when, when I'm performing, I look at people who are smiling back at me or nodding their head or dancing because they, they really motivate me. But I, I'm not I'm not knocking anyone who doesn't because I'm sure that as an audience member, I'm, I'm not a, the most engaging. Like I, I don't laugh out loud that, that much watching a movie or in a comedy show, but maybe I should to help out the person. How much do you imagine yourself as your audience? I mean, we often hear about like muses and stuff like that. Like the muse is the one who's helping you to, to create the art, right? But then as, as an audience as well, like, are you, do you envision yourself as the audience and like, okay, I've got to connect with the me's who are in the audience who might not necessarily, as you said, might not necessarily be the most comfortable and forthcoming of, of audiences. How much do you imagine yourself and try to play to yourself or play to that standard? The whole time. And that's sad for me to admit because I shouldn't even be thinking when I'm singing. I should be in the song, which I am. But I mean, I'm also self-critical. So that's why I say all the time because if I just caught myself singing flat or cracking a little, then I'm immediately talking to myself while I'm singing the remainder of the song and saying, Tabby, why'd you do that? They were counting on you. But as far as someone else with a disability in the audience, if I imagine what they're thinking when they watch me, I do. That's why I, sometimes I might accentuate a lyric more to make sure it's articulated above everything else. Or I might be a little more dramatic. Like when I sing I Wrote Life, I purposefully sometimes sing a cappella 
the, those lyrics about the instance writing on the chalkboard or when I sing Stance, which is a song about emotional abuse and the New York Times article actually stated that people with disabilities have a higher rate of receiving emotional abuse than someone not with a disability because people might want to take advantage of us, think that we're not that bright. So anyway, when I sing that on stage, I'll emphasize certain lyrics more or I'll sing it slower. And all of this is pre-rehearsed and that's what I love about my band. During rehearsal, I tell them, just like a diva, I'm like, I want this to be like this. Cause you know, when you're not recording anymore, it doesn't have to be exact. You can play around and you can rearrange. And that's what I love about live performance. So yes, it's so sad how many people have come up to me saying they can relate to that emotional abuse, but that's good that I wrote about it then because now they listen to the song and can rise above. You're not alone. They're not alone. That's that's part of the role of an artist, isn't it? That you're bringing us together, but also illuminating life for us. Like maybe maybe we don't necessarily understand it quite as well, and you're giving us that that kernel of understanding that we go, oh wow. And do you think about that when you're on stage? Do you think about that when you're writing? Do you, do you think about that at all? I don't. I don't think about it probably till I'm going to perform that song for the first time. And that can be at an open mic or a show. Because if I think about what someone else will think, it can hinder. It can really hinder my lyrics. And I've seen that happen. So I really try not to. But it doesn't mean I don't go through drafts once I have thought about what people might think. I've definitely changed lyrics at the umpteenth hour <laughs> because I've thought about what might what people might think about it and the repercussion. But then again, sometimes I don't change the lyric and I go, that's a negative thought and I'll think positive and think of why I should not change the lyric or the song. Oh, but can I tell you when I do think about people a lot is when I'm deciding which songs will make the album cut. Because mm. I have so many songs, I can make more albums right now, Chris. So mm -hmm. I, of course, ask the band to vote. I give them like my top, let's say 15. And then I'll tell them, let's narrow it down. And then I start thinking, well, which one will people like the most? Let's try to make each track so good they can be single. But that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To figure out what people might like the best. I know. Because you're surprised, aren't you, sometimes? I am. And that's why I'm glad that what I do has been working so far. Of course, it's hard to compare because I haven't, I have not gone against this pattern of making it eclectic genre, or I have not gone against the pattern of 
picking a certain number of mid-tempo, fast-tempo, slow songs, or, or I have not gone against the pattern of having X number of advocacy-type songs versus non-advocacy-type songs. So, but I do think it's working because why? I asked you what your favorite songs are. I ask everyone what their favorite song is after they've listened. And if I take, if I show you the tally, it's distributed almost equally. Even a, even a coworker told me yesterday a track that was their favorite that I would never have guessed. So that means that what I'm doing must be good and I'm glad I released the ones I chose or that we chose collectively, but ultimately I chose because I did not, I did not second guess afterwards. Is the next album going to be named Diva? It seems like there's a theme running through here. I don't know. I don't know. So far, they've been after tracks. I want to do a Christmas album. I was thinking about that this season. And I want to do themed songs as well, like a Halloween song, one for different holidays. I want to write a Broadway score, Chris. There is so much I want to do and can do. So I'm going to make it happen. It's just a matter of time. I love the idea of that, that, that there, that it is just a matter of time. I mean, this is so much is about taking that risk to figure out, you know, who you are, what you can do and chasing those dreams. And, and I think you're empowering so many, so many people in chasing their dreams. And that's, we all need that. We all need that, that little, that little help to, to go forward and, and be bold really and you're you're being amazingly bold and not and, and not and not give up and to believe in yourself and you can indulge in the up and down as long as at the end you know that the positive way is going to help yourself and others i really mean that it sounds like so rehearsed but i really mean that well in the experience experience is giving you more fodder for songs as well right yes which for the rest of us is that definition of being alive really that we have more experiences we've experienced more and uh you know and and we know when we're truly happy then so thank you so much i really appreciate you uh to, where can people where can people find your music i'm on all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, but for the direct links, please go to my website, tabby, T-A-B-I-N-Y-C.com. Tabbynyc.com has all the links, so all those streaming platforms. And then the physical CD is also available on Amazon. Okay, you're going old school a little bit. I might even go more. We're thinking about vinyl, but we'll see. Vinyl's cool now, right? It's It's gone from vinyl to CD to to digital and then going back to vinyl. And so I think that sounds like a great idea, but uh, yes. so, so tabbynyc.com is where they can go to find you and, and you're on all the streaming, all the streaming systems and your new album is called? Dance for standing up for yourself. Yes, I had to do a lot of that, especially the past couple of years with the pandemic. So please take a listen and 
don't just listen once, maybe add a song to your playlist if you find a favorite one. That would mean so much to me to know that you're not just a one-time listener, but you like the songs and want to help elevate the community of people who are disabled musicians. People who are also telling a great story too. You're, yes. you're singing a great song. And, and so uh, I think, yeah, I think you're doing, you're doing so much on, so throughout the whole spectrum. So don't want to, don't want to pigeonhole you into, into one thing because you're doing so many things so well. So thank you so much. That's very true. I am so many things. <laughs> Thank you. You are. Well, Tabby, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank all of you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We hope you liked it. Please tell your friends. Please follow us. Please like us. This will this will come as a regular traditional podcast later on. So if you missed anything, you can tune in later on, or you can go to the One Revolution page on Facebook, and you can watch it in its entirety. It'll be archived there, this whole conversation. But uh, Tabby, thank you, and thanks to all of you. Thank you.